0: Awakenings, Chapter 6, read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott. After spending a couple of days at Kushinagar, the pilgrims continue their walk heading east. They come to Fazilnagar at night and find a Jain pilgrim's rest house, where a passing stranger shows them the way in through the steel gates at its entrance. Chapter 6 Spiritual Friendship At
1: Tsuchito
2: The man who had helped us, his function fulfilled, disappeared. There were a lot of these people popping up on the pilgrimage. Thinking back, we'd sometimes speculate, what would have happened if that man hadn't shown up? and a glow of gratitude and wonder would arise. In that glow, these friends in the darkness could be seen as a main thread of the pilgrimage. It was as if the frequently irritating experiences were just there to provide the scenario within which some benevolent being could arise to guide us through. But the glow was brief. We soon dropped back into darkness again. This time, the darkness was actually gloom slightly illuminated by light from a building a dozen metres ahead. In between was some kind of a garden. A few stunted trees, scraps of dry grass, a low block that must have been a latrine and washing area with a few buckets dotted around it. The yellow patch of light at the end of the garden drew us in. Beyond the door arose a startled caretaker, an old ledger to sign in on, garbled attempts at conversation, a fumbling with keys, a rickety door that unlocked, and a simple room to sink down in. The room was bare except for a single large table-like structure that was the sleeping platform. It nearly filled the room. The day's walk was ebbing out of my blisters when the door banged open and some bedding came in with a pair of arms around it and a couple of legs carrying it along. I made the reassuring, satisfied noises. Acha! Acha! teek, Tick! Yes, right, that's fine. And reverted to a woozy meditation for a while, before stretching out on my half of the platform. Sleeping on hard surfaces goes in phases. First is the hour or two of near coma. And then as the mind begins to revive, Comes awareness of the uncomfortable impression of bone on something that does not yield. Limbo sleep takes over, drifting in and out of the nether world, prompted by the need to roll over. Eventually the snatches of sleep become so brief that you get up. But that first draught of oblivion is so sweet. I should have known that a Jane rest house would snatch it away. All too soon, the crash of the door and a blink of light us to the surface world, blinking. Three men wrapped in clad blankets, one with a shaven head, all with tense expressions. Something wrong? Some phrases jostled around, but the waving of another book indicated that what was needed was some more signatures and passport numbers. When the brief business was concluded, they continued looking around, commenting to each other. "'occasionally proffering of a gentle inquiry in our direction. "'Then they brought over the blankets that we hadn't used "'and put them on our table. "'I realised they wanted to be sure we had everything we needed. "'We were guests, Westerners as well, "'and therefore instinctively to be looked after. "'Not knowing quite what to do, "'they settled for just watching over us attentively. "'My little clock,' said eleven o'clock, I knew what to do, so I made to lie down with, that's it, I'm going to sleep, smiles and sighs. They sat back quietly to watch. This obviously wasn't working. Nick, man of action, bundled them out of the room, drew the bar across the door and put out the light. After the early morning meditation, we paid up, and having left our bags in the rest-house, set off in search of Pava, the site of the Buddha's last meal. Somehow we had ascertained it lay down the side road beside the rest-house, a stroke of luck, that. We walked about a kilometre with rising uncertainty. No sign of anything special. After a while we turned back and wandered down the road looking around us. Nothing but fields and trees. Then... A magical stranger came along who pieced together our mysterious presence and garb, and my inquiries about Buddha Bhagwan, and pointed vigorously at a nearby patch of land. It was uncultivated, with a few cows meandering around, and the outskirts of a village on its far side. But he kept pointing vigorously. There was a regular shaped white block on the far side, but nothing that you could call a shrine. Still, having come this far, we felt obliged to investigate. The land on the edges of villages is, of course, the most convenient place for the villagers to defecate in. So, apart from the cow dung, there were liberal scatterings of human excrement to be mindful of as we picked our way over to the mysterious white block. Next to it stood the now familiar blue enamelled notice of the Archaeological Survey of India, whose white lettering informed the reader that this was an ancient monument, and defacing it would render the culprit subject to a fine of five thousand rupees, or three months' imprisonment. That was all. The white block was rectangular, about the size of a small desk, concrete and unadorned. Apart from the notice, only a few remains of incense sticks confirmed that Yes, this indeed must be the spot commemorating the place where Chunda the smith offered the Buddha the fatal meal of pig's delight. The story goes that the Buddha had felt that the mysterious dish, perhaps pork, or perhaps something that pigs feed on like truffles, or even as totally unrelated to pigs as the British dish toad in the hole is the toads, was bad to eat. Still, he hadn't wanted to disappoint the humble smith by rejecting his offering, so he took some himself, while telling Chunda to ditch whatever remained of that dish and not to give it to any of the other monks. However, his own stamina was now considerably reduced by age and a recent severe illness, and soon the bad food brought on a violent attack of dysentery. With his loyal attendant, Ananda, the Buddha had slowly and painfully made his way onward to pass away in the sal grove outside of Kusinara. Of his last acts, one of the most generous was to tell Ananda to absolve Chunda from any blame. The smith's intentions had been good, and after all, the Buddha's body was old and painful, like an old cart bound together by leather thongs, as he put it. In fact, he reflected that Chunda's deed could even be seen as a blessing. It was allowing him to pass into the ultimate nirvana did he had guided so many others to over forty-five years. I had to admit the setting was appropriate. The dung-strewn field and the buzzing flies befitted a place of dysentery and death. The warmth of the morning wafted excremental odours over the fragrance of the incense that I lit and offered. Nick produced some yellow sponge cake with a cheerful remark. It was wrapped in greasy paper and tasted like it had been steeped in ammonia. I felt like keeping the Buddha's resolve to eat on no matter what, but Nick, munching some himself, was coming to the same conclusions. The mysterious pig's delight must be none other than this rancid cake. Not being ready to follow the Buddha's example yet, I ate half, spat some out, and gave the rest to the flies. For them it would probably make a change from excrement. We picked up our bags from the rest house and moved on into Fazzin Down a back street, a strange hill with another blue-enabled notice beside it could only have been an ancient stupa that had become grassed over. There was a Muslim shrine on it now. Past that and across the fields we went. A farmer offered us a meal in a tiny village and then we were on a small road leading back to the trunk road.
0: Nick Scott That morning, as we had walked into Fasil Nagar, we had talked about Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's faithful companion. We would get talking like that sometimes, hit on a new topic of conversation, and spend an hour or two mulling it over as we walked along. It would happen in the morning, before the walking got too unpleasant, and usually after we we'd left some stop, that had injected something new into our world. Ajahn Suchito had spoken of the sense of pathos he felt in the descriptions of the Buddha's last years. Reading between the lines, it appeared to him that the days when the Buddha was accompanied everywhere by many monks were gone. He was old, in his eighties, and presumably most of his disciples were now much younger and off practising on their own. Ajahn Suchito imagined them all thinking, with the arrogance of youth, that the Buddha was past it, only Ananda staying with him until the end. Ananda spent many years with the Buddha and is mentioned throughout the scriptures. It was he, in fact, who memorised many of the teachings and the incidents which led to them. These include many conversations he had with the Buddha himself. He comes across in the scriptures as kind and enthusiastic, if sometimes a bit foolish someone constantly more concerned with others than himself. One conversation I remember as discussing was the time Ananda was enthusiastically praising spiritual friendship and said that surely spiritual friendship must account for half of the holy life. The Buddha replied, No, spiritual friendship was all of the holy life. Ajahn suchito pointed out that the Buddha's reply could also be translated as a play on words. No, Ananda. Friendship with the spiritual is the whole of the holy life. Another extract from the sutras that Ajahn Sujito quoted were the words the Buddha consoled Ananda with when he was overcome with grief at the Buddha's imminent death. Enough, Ananda, do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other? So how could it be, Ananda, since whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay? How could it be that it should not pass away? That topic lasted us most of the morning. It was a delight when we could talk like that. Ajahn suchita could be such a mine of information. We were still discussing Venerable Ananda as we walked on after the meal. But the heat of the afternoon and the trunk road soon put an end to that. Instead, we went back to trudging along with our heads down, in our own worlds, mine soon a fog of fatigue and negativity, as I trailed some way behind him. The brief feeling of companionship had evaporated. I found, though, that however fed up I got with everything, I could never get that angry with my companion, because of the basic respect I had for him. We were just both in this together, come what may. A motorbike pulled up as we walked on. Excuse me, what is your native place? The question was there before we were aware of the questioner, now dismounting, We are from England. And what is the purpose of your visit? A small crowd began to form. We are on a walking pilgrimage. I am asking why it is that you are walking. Our questioner stood in our path, confident that he had the right to interrogate us. It was on the trunk roads that we met such educated men and some could be so arrogant. And what is your opinion of India? Ajun Suchito patiently answered the questions as a larger and larger crowd coalesced to stare at us. The problem with this kind of man was that he did not want us to leave. Having us answer his questions fed his feeling of self-importance. He simply replied to my suggestions that we must be moving along with another question. This time, after some 15 minutes of these questions, I hit on the solution. It has been most enjoyable speaking to you. Thank you so much for your very interesting questions. The flattery stunned him for a moment. Goodbye. We managed to turn and escape before he could recover. The trunk road was the most direct route to our next holy site, for it led southeast, crossing the only bridge over the great Gandak River, and heading for the city of Masafapur in Bihar. There was an alternative, though, in very small writing on the old map I had with me was the word Ferry, and it was on a part of the river that was to the east of where we now were. If we could cross there, we would be able to visit two other Buddhist sites, Loria Nandigar, and Loria Ariyajh. Both had pillars that had been erected by the great Buddhist emperor Ashoka, and Loria Nandigar also had a large Buddhist stupa. It would also mean that we could then follow the river south instead of the road. And rivers usually meant lots of wildlife. We reached Tumkui around five. It was a small town that had grown up along the trunk road. The road was the main street and was lined with transport cafes, stalls selling snacks and fruit, figures squatting on the ground behind small piles of produce and lots of people milling about. The small road we were looking for led off to the north, and on its corner was a tea shop with a group of young men sitting outside. We stopped for tea and to ask the way. The young men spoke English but were hazy about whether we could go to Betia, a town on the other side of the Gandak, this way. So I got them to ask the people in the crowd that had gathered about us. Their question, in the local dialect, set off an animated discussion, with one old chap seeming particularly agitated. This old man says there is a ferry this way. The old man nodded and gave us a juice grin. As we walked on, some of the young men joined us, walking abreast and started asking questions about our journey they were wearing the standard Indian version of western dress. Black shoes, black nylon trousers and a white short-sleeved shirt with a pen in the pocket. Every young educated male we met was dressed that way. The only variation I ever spotted was in the quality of the pen and whether they had a wristwatch. Our new companions had proper fountain pens, not ballpoints, and they all had good-looking watches so they must be from better-off families. After a while, one of them suggested that we could stay at his house. We were reluctant, but he was a nice lad with an open, friendly face and persistent, so eventually we decided to accept tea and see what we thought then. After all, his father might not be quite so keen to have two such unusual guests for the night. We need not have worried. The father turned out to be just as friendly as his son. We were made at home on the veranda of a big brick house in the centre of the village, served with tea and again pressed to stay. They wanted to feed us too and when we explained we couldn't eat after noon we had to agree to breakfast. We spent that evening on the veranda talking to the men of the family and others from the village now wearing the more comfortable clothes of village life. Sarongs of simple checked cloth, topped with a white t-shirt or vest. A young daughter peeked at us from around the door to the house, ducking inside if we looked her way. The other women may do with furtive looks from the safety of the kitchen. We sat and talked late, and then slept that night on the veranda, on bedding made up by the son and his younger brothers. In the morning, we woke before first light, to the sound of activity in the house. We sat in meditation until dawn, when tea arrived, but no breakfast. It would be here soon, perhaps we would like to wash at the village pump first. But when we returned, there still was no breakfast. It was getting late, and I was fretting for the loss of the cool morning's walking. But it did no good. They were determined to do us proud. When eventually it did come, it was better and more elaborate than any of our midday meals. It was an open road that day, with few trees to shade us, and the walk through the heat, laden with that heavy meal, was taxing. The road led north to Tumkui Station, where we turned east onto a smaller road. It was all very open country, with nowhere suitable to rest, or to sleep that night, so we pressed on in the hope that the other side of the river would be better, both of us getting more and more weary. By late afternoon, we knew we were getting near to the Great Gandag by the way the road was changing. It was raised on a slight mound above the fields. First the quality of the tarmac had deteriorated, then potholes appeared, and then the tarmac steadily decreased, until there was none at all. But there were still lots of activity, no lorries or cars, but people walking, flights of bicycles, and the occasional rickshaw or cart. As we went further, the surface, now red-brown dirt, the colour we were slowly turning, became more uneven, rutted and dusty. And then suddenly the fields and our raised mound just stopped. A cliff fell some twenty feet before us and there was a very wide, very sluggish river. Here it was steadily eroding away slices of someone's land. There was a collection of huts, one selling tea some government signs and then steps down the cliff and a landing stage. We sank down onto a bench outside the tea hut and ordered tea. As we drank, we watched the wooden ferry slowly make its way back across the river, the ferrymen leaning into long poles. Once it a beach, we clambered down and stepped on, along with a dozen others and half a dozen bicycles. That filled the boat completely the bicycles leaning against each other in the middle and us and the other passengers on seats along the sides. I felt very close to the water sloshing against the boat which rocked and sank under the weight of its cargo as the last passengers and bicycles found their place. The four boatmen were dressed in the working clothes of the poor, a dirty sarong, a vest and a piece of cloth wrapped about their head. One of them clambered around collecting the fares, deliberately discreet with the other passengers, so I couldn't see how much they were paying. When he got to me, he boldly stuck out his hand and demanded, Das rupee. But I had seen the official prices displayed on the government sign and knew that ten rupees was eight too many. Do rupee, I replied. Das rupee, he demanded. I had to make out as if I was leaving the boat... Rocking it and the passengers as I did so. Then he became more reasonable. Cha rupee, four rupees. He pointed to the two of us in turn and then to our luggage, which was taking up the room of a passenger. I counted with ting rupee, three rupees. He accepted with a gentle tilt of the head and I paid up. The boat was then towed up river by the ferryman. They bent forward, hauling on ropes over their shoulders and grunted their way along the bank until we had gone some several hundred yards. Then we set off, steered and pushed by them, straining on the poles against the surge of the current. Despite this, the boat steadily moved downriver as we crossed. The river lapped at the sides, a dirty grey full of sediment from the Himalayas. From our low perspective, the river looked fast, as it slipped away beneath us. The boat landed on a grey sandy beach, and we had to clamber out into the shallow water. Beyond was an empty expanse of sand, heaped up, deposited there by the river in flood, with tall waving grassland some way beyond it. A couple of huts, made of the grass, sat at its edge, presumably homes for the ferrymen, and from there a path went on. Ignoring that path and the warnings about bandits and crocodiles we'd received earlier, we trudged across the sand heading down river and let the increasing gloom of the approaching night hide us. We sat that night by the river, feeling it quietly surging by, laden with the sediment that created the Ganges plains we were crossing. India was once, 45 million years ago, a separate landmass. Having broken away from Gondana land, much of which is now Antarctica, it sailed majestically and imperceptibly across the ocean to come up against the rest of Asia. India, true to its disruptive nature, is still moving, pushing north and forcing up the Himalayas as its crunched up leading edge. Because India is being forced under Asia, there was at first an inland sea at the base of the Himalayas, much like the Mediterranean today, but bigger. The erosion of the new mountains filled the sea with sediment, until it became a vast river plain, known now as the Indus-Ganges Plain, running from the Afghani hills in the west over 3,000 miles to the Burmese hills in the east. The Himalayan mountains are still being eroded as they continue to be pushed up, filling with sediment the big rivers that flow out of them the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, and the Indus, with their tributaries such as the Gandak. The rivers snake across the plain, ever shifting their position, eroding one bank and depositing sediment elsewhere. When the monsoon comes, the rivers rise and spill out over the land, depositing silt over everything. This fertilizes the land, but also causes much destruction, and it slowly buries the history of the people who live there. That is why all the Buddhist archaeological remains have been buried, covered with up to 4 meters of silt. That is just 2,000 years worth. In places the silt is as deep as 4,000 meters, Looking out over the great Gandak, laden with silt like some vast flowing mud bath, makes you realize how integral the rivers are to the plain. It's no wonder the Indians worship them.
1: At Chansuchito.
2: Night by the Gandak, letting the day end. It was good to look up into the huge sky and see Orion, an old companion from Britain, standing overhead. The great hunter was refreshingly silent. At the end of the day, I just wanted to sit with the Buddha and let the rest of it pass over. It was strange spending so much time with Nick, but barely having had a conversation. To my mind, his bounding, spontaneous style seemed insensitive. Or maybe not being able to do things my way was the problem. Well, that was my friend, loyal, generous, exasperating Nick. I could feel myself getting moody toward the end of the day, what with the blisters, the heat, the fatigue, the grime, and the jangle of India. and I realised I was probably irritating him in return. We were probably helping each other through all kinds of attachments, if you could only realise it. At the end of a day, Nick would be looking for a good spot to spend the night. A concept that meant little to me. So we would stumble around in the darkness until we sank down somewhere as not good enough as anywhere else. So it was beside the Gandak. How could one stretch of sand be better than another? Well, I argue especially it was time to fumble around in the dark trying to find a level patch of ground, then unpack the lantern and try to get some light going. One in every ten Indian matches will light when struck. The others are there to wear out the striker and build up exasperation so that as you furiously scratch the lucky match against the side of the box, the head flies off, sometimes igniting to land in your eye or burn a hole in your sleeping bag. In case you get over that hurdle, the candles either lack wicks or are made of ill-burning wax. Occasionally, my grim, almost bloody-minded resolve would raise a flame. By the Gandak, the river breeze playfully snuffed that out. So the end of the day was hardly the mellow space in which to sort out personality conflicts. I was too tired out and saturated with dissatisfaction to want to do anything but sit there, with my Buddha image somewhere in the dark in front of me, or lie down, feet stretched out to cool in the wind, until it was all right. A night beside a great Indian river, off the beaten track in the middle of nowhere, should have been amazing. But sitting quietly and opening up to the way it is, it was in a way more than that. Despite the blisters and dullness and human jangle, as constant companions, everything was all right.
0: Nick Scott. Next morning we woke to find ourselves covered in heavy dew. People were coming off the ferry, and we were able to follow them as they pushed their bicycles across the sand and through the grasslands. One man without a bicycle was dressed all in his best white, white baggy long cotton shirt hanging down and half covering his white cotton doughty. A doughty is created afresh every morning from a long piece of light cloth wrapped in a complex way That has always intrigued me, with the material passing a couple of times through the legs and giving the effect half of skirt, half trousers. Apparently, the longer the piece of cloth, and so the more baggy and elaborate looking the assemblage, the better the dhoti. The Indians wearing these would walk along with the end pieces flapping slightly and when outdoors, one corner held in a hand to keep the bottom from getting dirty. Without any conversation that I can remember, our all-white guide showed us the way, walking ahead like some guardian angel. The sand undulated, and much of it as we got further from the river was covered in a mixture of tall grasses and scrub. There were standing water in places and small tributaries of the main river to be waded through. Then our guardian would hold his white skirts up higher and indicate us to follow his route through the shallowest parts. He had no need to take off his plastic shoes, but our leather sandals had to come off and then be put back on for each crossing. While he waited patiently. Every so often we'd come upon a patch of what must have been better soil, which someone was cultivating. Eventually the path climbed to a higher level and we weren't on sand anymore. Ahead of us the bicycles were mounted and ridden off. Our guide, having pointed out our path, had to leave us. We found ourselves alone walking on a wandering dirt track through fields, trees and small villages. My map told us that we were in fact on an island but gave no idea how to proceed. I had to go on trusting the guide's directions. The path eventually brought us, of its own, to the other branch of the river, passing undulating desert-like tracts of sand in which poor villagers were trying to grow a crop of some leafy green vegetable each plant sitting in its own hollow in the shade of a large cut banana leaf placed above it on sticks. There were long parallel lines of them, with the occasional toiling cultivator carrying water from the distant river in two old cooking oil drums slung from a pole across his shoulders. When we got there, following the tracks of the cultivators, we found this branch of the river was much smaller than the first. We were able to wade across, still following the tracks and up to our thighs in water. And so we returned to the land of metal droves and the motor car. We were now also in Bihar. <coughs>